So I'd like to um, welcome onto the programme Sister, Sister Bride Coonahan, who's uh, with the Little Sisters of the Assumption, I believe, and I believe she's based in Cork. Good morning to you, Sister Bride. Good morning, John, and thank you very much for inviting me on your programme. Thank you very much indeed for coming on. And uh, actually, I got to know all about Sister Bride, or a little bit about Sister Bride, through Father Frank Dewey here from Newcastle West, who suggested that maybe I, I have a chat with Sister Bride. She, she's certainly worked in Limerick. She's, she's also been worked abroad too, but has an interesting little vocation story and also has some experiences working away from, uh, from this country. So this morning, Sister Bride, maybe there's two things we'll speak about. We'll speak about the vocation story and maybe some of your experience in the poorest part of the world. Maybe just to start off, maybe a little bit about your, fa- your, you know, your family background um, a few years ago at this stage now. <laughs> yes, a good few years ago, John. So I was born in Cork and uh, I am one of three children. Now, we were a very simple ordinary family uh, we never had very much in those days but we got by uh, i had one brother and one sister older than myself and then myself so growing up in cork i went to school locally first in ballinlock in the national school and then i did my secondary school studies in the presentation the south presentation convent and after that then when i did my leaving cert i went to the school of commerce which it was called in those days, and I did a year's secretarial course, which was in those days shorthand and typing. The computer had not yet been invented, or if it had, it hadn't arrived in Cork. So then when I was finished that year's course, I got a job in a business in Cork called Merville Ice Cream. So my job was to sit there in the office every day at my typewriter, And these vans were going in and out with the ice cream, delivering all over the place. And my job was to check the invoices and make sure that how much ice cream has gone out and how much money is coming in and all of that. So anyway, I was there doing that. And I found myself wondering to myself, you know, is this all there is? Because, you know, as a young person, you know, you study, you get into secondary school, you get your intercert, you go on, you get your leaving cert. And you're, you know, you're pushing all the time ahead after something, you know, then you do the secretarial course and you're going to have more skills and you're still striving for something. And then finally you land in your job. And gosh, it kind of isn't all that you were thinking it would be. And I suppose during that time, side by side with that, uh, in our secondary school, we had some marvelous presentation sisters and through them, I was, our, some of our class were volunteers in a, a project in, in Cork for the disabled, for disabled children. And our class was responsible for running a little social club with these children. And I suppose that kind of gave me a bit of a taste for another type of life. You know, I saw the sisters there dedicating their lives to these children. And uh, I, I'm certain that all of that in my consciousness was, you know, making some inroads. And then as well as that, in my own parish, I was a member of the Legion of Mary. And in actual fact, it was through the Legion of Mary that I got to know the Little Sisters of the Assumption to begin with. Because have I saw them on television 
but I had never met any of them until one day the local priest, Father Crowley, he brought this sister along to our Legion of Mary meeting. And I discovered that she was a social worker living in Blackpool and she was coming to talk to us about our work among the elderly, because as legionaries, we used to visit a lot of elderly people. So I was sitting there listening to her talking about all of this and telling us a bit about her own life. And I was thinking, my gosh, that is very interesting because many years previously I had seen some program on television about the sisters in Limerick, but here I discovered that they were also in Cork. And, you know, that kind of gave me the inroad into meeting and going to visit their community and so getting involved with the community here in Blackpool now. Um, and when I got to know those sisters, then I used to go out with them on a Saturday. They would take me out into the local community, visiting the people that they were working with. And uh, this was all a kind of a big eye opener to me because I didn't really know that there was anything like that going on. And of course, this, um, I mean, this also took you away from that famous job in the ice cream place then to look at it invoices to give you something else to do with the weekend. Yeah, it kind of, uh, I sort of thought, gosh, I never realised that there were sisters doing this kind of work in the community because the only sisters I knew were in schools or in hospitals. The other thing then was you were now meeting sisters in a in an environment different to the school, whereas in the school it was a kind of a teacher, you had to obey them and so on and so forth. Now you're meeting sisters working out in the community, maybe being a little bit more than the, themselves, than in a formal that's setting. Exactly. And hmm. that's one of the things that I would always say that attracted me to the congregation was that these were very ordinary women moving around among the people, going into people's homes in a very simple, ordinary way of presence. And, uh, you know, I just thought, this is really, there's a lot to do with religion, and yet there is really not much mention of religion. Mm, It was like the gospel in action. And then I discovered that one of the things that the founder of the congregation, Father Stephen Perney, had said was that you preached by your life and your actions rather than by your words. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, he said, the street is your cloister. So this was all resonating with me. And this was reminding me of that program that I had seen on the television. Because a little bit before that, it was actually a program about Limerick. And it was focusing on the arrival of a group of sisters into the grounds of the St. Munchen's College a a few years previous to that. They came to live in a house in the grounds, which was empty, Mm -hmm. and they arrived and they were moving around in the city on motor scooters. (laughs) Now, that was very different, Uh you know. So I discovered that these sisters, they were very focused at that time on health. They were several of them were nurses and they were going out into the homes of the people, uh, people you would say nowadays that were very marginalized, 
people that were having very difficult life circumstances, as we would say nowadays, people who had been made poor or who were disadvantaged in any way. These sisters seemed to be friendly with all of these people and they were helping them in the area, especially of health, helping the families. So I saw there on the television that the people of Limerick really opened their arms to these sisters because the house that they were given was really a kind of an empty house that had been part of St. Munchen's College, but there was now nobody living in it for some time. And my goodness, there was a fantastic upsurge of involvement of people to help to set up that house, you know, to help to furnish the house. People brought all sorts of things from all sorts of places. And in a very short time, the sisters had an, a very nice community house to live in. And that was in large, in large measure thanks to the people of Limerick. Now, just around that time, there was a very far-seeing bishop in Limerick called Bishop Murphy. And he was very, very interested in the situation of the poor of the city. And that is why he invited the congregation to come to Limerick to do this kind of community-based work, you know, in the local community and helping the people to help themselves. So one of our sisters, Sister Quivin, she got very involved in work with Bishop Murphy, which led to the setting up of what is now called the Limerick Social Service Council, which was set up to, to have an outreach to the city of Limerick and also to the, the farther parts of the diocese. Uh, Sister Braid, when did you become involved with the, with, with the order, with the, with, the, with the Little Sisters? I saw it on the television in about 1964, and in 1965, I met the sisters in Cork, which led to my, as I say, having to go to Dublin <laughs> to do the training, which we call the novitiate. Uh-huh. So that was a, a little bit off-putting because I said, Lord, if it's good, surely it's to be found here in Cork. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> but as it happened, as it happened, the novitiate was in Dublin. So at a certain time, I felt, you know, getting to know the sisters, I felt the time was right to pack my bags and give this a try. So my brother looked at me and he said, oh, God, he said, I don't know. I don't think you'd last two months in that. That (laughs) wouldn't be for you at all. Uh Anyway, two months turned into 52 years and here we still are. Very good. Very good. So you 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 completed your novitiate in Dublin, and then what? What did, then did you return to Limerick? Yeah, no, no, I I did I studied then. I did well. I had a little bit of experience in the congregation. You know, at that in those days, you would be sent to different communities. So I was actually sent up to Belfast. Okay. So to me, a young a young teenager going from Cork to Belfast, it might as well have been the foreign missions. <laughs> yes, yes. And in actual fact, John. I went to Belfast in August 1969, and I hasten to say no connection with the outbreak of the Troubles, which began that very same month, because that was the beginning of the whole struggle of the civil rights. So after my time in Belfast, then living there with the community and getting to know the work of the congregation, I came back to Dublin and I did the social science training in UCD. And it was from there then that 
uh, to my great joy, I was sent to Limerick, which was kind of my first love because I had seen the mission of the sisters in Limerick on the television those years previously. And tell me, um, Braid, the sisters that were based in Limerick then, were they native Irish or, or, or were these sisters from? They were, no, they were all Irish. They okay. were. They were all Irish. Um, they were sisters who had worked in different communities around Ireland. Mm-hmm. And then when Bishop Murphy invited us to make the foundation in Limerick, they were sent, like there was about four of them to, sent there to begin to start this kind of same mission of the the congregation, which was the spreading of the kingdom of God among the people and with particular reference to people who are marginal. So they were all Irish, they were, and, and they all learned to drive a motorbike. <laughs> and that was the means of transport in those days, which was kind of a, a new thing for us even. I'd say that must have been a new thing for the people of Limerick to see nuns flying around the place on motorbikes. I'd say it was, John, because you're talking about the 1960s where Ireland was a very different place. Yes. You know, it, it was a traditional place and the, the, the stereotype of the nuns was, you know, the sisters that were inside. Um, mostly the sisters worked in schools and in hospitals. And uh, there, was, there, were some, there were some sisters always who had an outreach to the community, but it was not very well known in those days. And, uh, so then we kept, we came along and we kind of took this on uh, with each sister going to work in a different parish, all those parishes around the city of Limerick. And tell me, how were the sisters received amongst the people? We were received very well because the, sister, the people of Limerick, without them, we first of all couldn't have set up the house mm. because we really didn't, we didn't have the resources ourselves to kind of go away and buy a house or build a house and furnish a house. Mm. We didn't have those resources because, as you can appreciate from the kind of life that I have described to you, we lived for the first hundred years, longer than the first hundred years, completely dependent on the providence of God. Mm-hmm. We actually had a rule that did not allow us to take money from any family in where we worked. We were not allowed to take money. So we really lived very basically, and we depended on the providence of God. So when we went to Limerick, the providence of God held true and the people rallied round and they gave fantastic help and really, really, really accepted us. Then in the local communities as well, the people were very appreciative of the service because many people who were sick at home, you know, you have to flash your mind away back now. This was before you had anything like public health nurse or anything like home help, or anything like that. In fact, the work that we did in those days was very much what you would call home help work. It was going into the family and helping in the case, particularly of sickness of the mother. And as the years evolved then, John, and you had the 1970 Health Act, and the service, the state became much more involved in community services, one of the things we were asked to do as a congregation was to help to set up the, the state home help services because we had a lot of experience of doing it ourselves and that's what we did then in the later years several sisters helped to set up home help services in different places So when you arrived in Limerick, Sister Breeds um, what sort of work were you involved with yourself personally? 
with myself personally, mm. the first place, I, the first the first time I went to Limerick, I was living in Carbally and I was working with the Limerick Social Services. Uh, there, I was assigned the area of South Hill and I was to be the social worker there. Now, there were other orders too. You had the Blue Nuns, you had the Good Shepherd Nuns, uh, each working in a different parish in Limerick. And then when I went to South Hill, there was a, another social worker, a young woman named Joan O'Keefe, who came with me, and the two of us worked together in South Hill. So what did we do there? I suppose initially we had to kind of try and see what really were the needs of families. And I suppose this was a very different era, John, that, you know, you didn't have much of the state supports for families that you would mm -hmm. have nowadays. Mm -hmm. So we really found that, you know, there was great need for the kind of service of social work, the kind of presence there with people with difficult situations. So we worked at that level with individual families. And bit by bit then we saw that, you know, for example, families had a lot of small children and it was very difficult for the mother to even have the possibility of going out to work for a few hours to earn some money. So we got involved in the setting up of preschools where the children could come during the day and various other things that we did where we tried to get the local community working with us. And in my time in South Hill, we were very, very lucky because the clergy who were there at that time, they were very sensitive to the social needs of the people. The parish priest was Father Shinners, who is long since dead now. And then you had Father Marish O'Connor, who is still in the diocese, and Father uh, Enright, Liam Enright, who is also in the diocese. And together with the three of them and the sister from the school, who was at that time Sister Concilio, a presentation sister, and myself and the social worker, we used to meet regularly as a team to look at what was happening in South Hill, to look at the needs of the families and to try to see where we should put our energies, where where was the most need for, for help with people. And all of that eventually led towards the setting up of a local community council in South Hill, where we were helping the people themselves to take more responsibility for all of these social needs, which they did through the development of the community association. And that led on then to other services eventually being uh, coming into the, social, the South Hill area. I can remember, God rest him, Frank Klusky, who was uh, oh, the yeah. social welfare person mm -hmm. in those days. Yeah. We, we all filled into Father Shinner's car, a group of us, and we landed at Frank Klusky's door and we had a great conversation with him about the needs of the community. And when I say we all know, we, I mean the local people, with the clergy and the result of all that was that we got one of the first purpose-built preschools in Limerick but that really was all thanks to the efforts of the people working along with us. But but again it's worth reminding us all that you're speaking about times when there was no social service, no formal social services. No, not in those early years there wasn't. So before, before your sisters came into that area these people were really, they really didn't have anywhere to turn, did they? Well, you had, one of the things you had was called the Home Assistance Officer. Okay. 
and that was that was a very complicated situation because mm. it was very discretionary service where it was all really dependent on um, the person who was administering it. You know, the, yes. the idea that people had rights to basic income levels or any of that, that really wasn't very much there in those days, the sense that what people's rights were. Yeah. It really was kind of, um, it was the old poor law continued, you know, that you had the deserving poor and the undeserving poor. And God help you if you fell into the category of the undeserving I'd imagine pool, that. You could, for, you could forget it. So, so people must have been really delighted when, when this first preschool started. Well, it was a great help. It really was. And it was lovely because a lot of families with small children, you know, in those days, there really weren't, you know, people didn't have the possibility of putting their child into a creche and paying for it and going off to work. Those opportunities weren't there in those days. So in the preschool, then we used to work with the children, but then also we used to work with the mothers. And, you know, we had various activities going on, educational programs, because, you know, you had things like the rate of literacy would have been high because people would have left school early and mm. all of that kind of thing. And now what I'm describing about South Hill, the other social workers were also doing in other areas of, of Limerick. You know, we weren't the only people doing this. And, you know, I, I was just thinking there when you were, I mean, these people really had a chance to come together as a community, maybe in a way that they weren't able to experience before. Now that they see these few little things happening, i.e. the preschool and a few more things, maybe, that, that they were getting a little bit of confidence in themselves to help, help themselves yes. a little bit more, maybe. Yes. And we had a very novel development in those days, um, John, <coughs> which was that... The, the church that was built in South Hill during my time was actually a dual purpose building. It was a church and it was also able to be converted into a community centre because the one third of the church was the altar and the sanctuary and all of that and the seating. And then you had these uh, partitions that could be brought across and the other two thirds of the church could be turned into a community hall for other community events. And that was hugely, that contributed hugely to the development of South Hill because people had a place to go, which was for religious services, but it was also for the community activities because there really were no community premises in those days. So that was very much due to the foresight of Bishop Murphy and Father Shinners, who was the priest at the time. So, as you say, that was the church in action. Absolutely. And I suppose that's what really um, resonated with me, that uh, this is really what our founder was talking about when he said, you know, you preach the sermon by your life, yes. by your action. And uh, that that really was, it was a marvellous time. And I think another part of the Old Testament which resonated with me very much was the story of Moses and the liberation of the people from Egypt. Mm -hmm. Story of the Exodus. Yes. As the sense grew in me that what I saw happening among the people in South Hill, where I saw people struggling to kind of work together, which wasn't always easy, and struggling to have a dignified life for their families and struggling to help their neighbours, I saw all of that 
as the same Spirit of God moving among the people, helping to free from injustice and oppression, just as centuries beforehand, the Old Testament writers told us that that same Spirit of God moved among the people when they were in slavery in Egypt and Moses was called to lead them out. So it kind of, that, that really uh, was a great source of nourishment for my faith because I really could see how God was faithful and how God was journeying with God's people. Now, the, the people mightn't always be, um, you know, very much um, connected with the practicing church. Uh, that would have probably been the minority because the majority were struggling to live and struggling to survive. Mm-hmm. But you had this other work of God going on in the people, the work of the Spirit of God, which was really something that was very powerful and very meaningful. And so you stayed in Limerick for what, 12 years, was it? I was eight years at that time. Eight years. And then later I went back and I was I went to live in Myros then and I spent another four years in Myros. Do and again, it, that was a very lovely time in my life. The same sort of work? Well, now, when, when I went to Myros, one of the things that was a little bit disconcerting was that all of the things that we saw happening in South Hill in the earlier years, we fed into the local authorities. And, you know, we made recommendations. When I say we now, I'm talking principally about the community association. Mm -hmm. We made recommendations about what was needed when the state, when the government was going to build these big housing projects. You know, what kind of infrastructure was needed in the community? Then we went over to Myros years later. And I suppose it was kind of sad to see that not a lot of that was implemented. You know, again, you had a lot of houses in a, the, the open areas were a bit better, but there really wasn't any infrastructure of community facilities. You know, the houses were built, the people were put into the houses, mm. and so be it. Mm-hmm. So one of the very interesting works that we that I was involved in in, in Myros was where, again, through a local community association, we began to run these seminars where we invited each week a different public body. We'd invite like the corporation one week, the health board the next week, Shannon Development the next week, the VEC the next week. And the community was asking all of these agencies, you know, what are you doing? What are your plans for our community? Mm -hmm. Because these are the needs that we see. So that took a lot of... (laughs) A lot of years, but happily, happily nowadays, they do have very good community facilities in Myros, which really we never got to achieve in South Hill in the, in the previous times, because they have good community services there now. There's a very, multi, a very good multi-purpose community centre, which was built over many years by a kind of a partnership between all of those agencies with the local people. And, and there are various other services which developed out of that. So Myros did get much more uh, attention to the community needs than would have been the case in South Hill earlier. So that would have been, what, 12 years and and 12 years in total, was it, in Limerick? 12 years in total in Limerick. And uh, when I went, uh, when I left Myros then, um, I went to a new place in, in Cork called Mahan. 
and then eventually I went to Brazil. Uh, we'll, we'll speak about Brazil now in a few minutes, but I, I just want to go back again maybe to to your vocation to date now that you've told us. You know, you came from a job and you were sitting at the desk and you are wondering, is this what it's all about? And 10 or 12 years later, you've gone through this work in Limerick and some in Cork. And would you have thought entering a religious order before would have entailed the work you experienced in those 12 years. I think some people think of the work in, involved with a... And some religious orders are like this. They, uh, it's just maybe in a cloistered environment, they're praying all day long. In your environment, the work was varied. You, you prayed, but you worked. Would that be right? Both that's of them right. went together. That's right. And I think that's one of the, I suppose, the contributions of religious life in the church today it is showing, when I say religious life, I mean all the all the orders nowadays, they're very conscious that there was this split between people's faith and people's social reality. Mm-hmm. You know, traditionally there was a split. And I think that was one of the things, you know, you often found that people who were very committed to the church were mostly engaged in specifically religious things. And then people who were very involved in the social things in the community, like the Tenants Association, there were very often people who didn't go near the church at all. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. you kind of had this split. And I suppose what we have come to realise much more now is that, like Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, that's a very strong inspiration for religious life because, and for my own vocation. Because, like, Jesus wasn't just talking about yeah. life after death. Mm. Jesus was talking about life in abundance mm. for people in their daily lives. Yeah. And mm. I think that, to me, is a very strong motivation for people who enter religious life nowadays, that we feel that there is a great call to help people to have life in abundance. And that very often will mean um, tackling the social injustices in the society, it will often make you unpopular mm. with the status quo, the powers that be. But it is very much part of the role of religious nowadays to really take that seriously, that Jesus calls all his people to have life in abundance here as well as hereafter. So I think for, for vocation, I suppose that is a very strong motivation. Uh, I suppose uh, having been, uh, been working in Ireland, uh, when I was 25 years in the congregation, John, uh, I had the opportunity to have a sabbatical year. That means a year uh, free of uh, commitments, work commitments particularly. And many people, when they have that opportunity, they choose to study. You know, they might do some, some kind of study for that year. But I felt that what I would like was an experience. So I had, I mentioned earlier about this split between a, you know, religion and life. Hmm. And I had read things about the basic Christian communities in Latin America. And from what I had read, it seemed to me that there was a different kind of experience of church there where this people's social needs and people's religious needs seemed to be all one. And it seemed to me that that experience was much more like 
the early Acts of the Apostles, where the apostles were looking after the needs of the community and also the prayer. That So I asked, when I had the opportunity for this the sabbatical year, I asked if I could visit South America. And that's what I did. Now, I didn't have much language, so I said, I'm going to have to go with English-speaking religious, because to go with our own sisters, I would be completely lost because I don't have Portuguese, I, don't, I didn't have Portuguese, I didn't have Spanish, I didn't have French. So I got involved with a congregation in America called the Marinal Sisters, who had many missions in South America. So I went with them and I spent three months with them in Chile and I spent three months with them in Mexico. And then when I was to find, for, towards the end of the time, it happened that in the providence of God, they weren't able to take me for the end part of my year. And providentially, I met with another congregation, an Irish group called the Medical Missionaries of Mary. So I ended up going to Brazil with the Medical Missionaries of Mary for the final part of my sabbatical year. Now, I remember very clearly, I traveled by bus from Chile over the Andes Mountains and down into San Paulo in Brazil. And that was a two-day journey. And I can remember on that journey talking to God. And I was saying to God, you know, this has been a wonderful experience in Mexico and in Chile. But I said to the Lord, I don't somehow feel that there is anything that I have seen that really attracts me to the point where I could be part of it. And I said, Lord, if you want me to spend some part of my life in this part of the world, you're going to have to show me something in Brazil because that's the, that's the end of my year and mm. I'll be back home after that. Yeah. I can remember very clearly those thoughts in my mind as the bus has gone over the Andes Mountains. Anyway, I got to Brazil and I got up to the northeast to the state of Bahia and I got to the medical missionaries community where I was going to spend the final three months. So there I was in a town uh, in called Capingrosso, which was a, mm, I suppose, it was sort of in the semi-desert, but not, not, not very semi-desert at that time. And I lived in a house in a newly developing area with two medical missionary sisters. Now, they were both nurses and they were doing work all over the parish, health promotion work, all of that kind of work all over the parish. So they were going out every day to all different places and they were very conscious that right here where they were living, there was a big housing development growing up that they hardly knew because they were out all day and then came back at night and off out again the next day. So I saw all of this. And when I was there, they said to me, could you ever see yourself here? Because we need somebody to come to work in this immediate neighborhood where we're living as, you know, work with the community. So my gosh, that was a kind of a challenge to me. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh, Lord, 
Maybe, maybe you're taking me at my word. He is. <laughs> yes. As God is, as God is very likely to do. As he does. Uh, as God does. Mm. So I kind of, I did feel something stirring in me that I hadn't felt up to that moment in my sabbatical journey through Latin America. So I talked to them and I made a commitment in my own heart and I said to them as well that I would really I would seriously look at this when I went home so that's what I did and I ended up going back to them the following year and I spent five years with them in that town in Capingrosso and I always say that was like my novitiate I was trained by another order for the second half of my life for what I was going to be living in Brazil for the, the latter years. So I worked there in that neighborhood. Uh, you know, the work was not unlike what I was doing in South Hill in terms of the process, but naturally the needs were very different. Mm -hmm. The poverty was very much, the, the life was very much more basic. The people really lived very basically, very simply. And we did the same type of a process trying to help the people to come together to look at what they felt was needed. And out of that, the preschool, of course, came up as a big need. And then we got involved with the local government, trying to get them to support it and so on and so on. It was kind of the process was the same, even though the context was very different. But I suppose it, it felt very comfortable because it felt like something that I was familiar with, even though the culture and the language and all of that was very different. So I should have said, when I went back to join with the Medical Missionaries Project, eh, I had to go to school for three months to learn the language mm. because I had done a little bit of Spanish along the way for my other time in, in Mexico and in Chile, but it was Portuguese in Brazil. So the Spanish was not of great use. Yes, okay. So I did study the Spanish and then I spent five years there. Then... God became very active again in my life through ordinary circumstances. One day I was reading the newspaper and for, no, well, I got a letter from two sisters in Chile. They were the presentation order and they wanted to come and make a foundation in Brazil. So I said to the medical missionary sisters, you know, they're looking for help. They want us to take them to some poor places where they could set up a mission. I said, what do you think we should do? Where should we take them? So one of the sisters produced the newspaper of that very week, where there was a big article about a place called Umburanas, which had been designated as the least developed municipal area of the 415 municipal areas of the state. Now, that's something that happened every year the government would, through their research, they would declare such a place as the least developed. So they said to me, you can't go too wrong by taking them to this mm, place. Mm. So then we had to look and say, well, where is this place? And lo and behold, we discovered, John, that this place was actually in our diocese. But we had never heard of it because nobody from that place ever came to any meeting of the diocese that we went to. No, and, and the way the church operated in the diocese, there were many meetings that each parish would attend. 
but we had never met anybody from this place or ne- never even heard of it. Mm-hmm. So we found it out and we went there. Well, the sisters came, we invited them to come for a week and we took them out there. So my gosh, that was an eye opener because even though it was pretty poor where we were, this place was really out in the sticks and there were no priests, no sisters, no lay missionaries, nobody working out there. So I was only there in my capacity as a driver. I was driving the sisters Mm -hmm. and we had got some contacts that set up a meeting. So on that day that we arrived there with the two sisters, there was about 20 people gathered in this very poor little church that they had. And so the conversation began back and forth. We were the medical missionary sister, Terry and myself, we were translating because the, those sisters spoke Spanish, not mm-hmm. Portuguese. Mm-hmm. And so back and forth and back and forth went the conversation. The presentation sisters were telling the people what they were looking for, and they were asking the people what they were looking for. And so I'm sitting there listening to all this, and the people are saying, you know, the really, really basic thing we need is we need people to come here to live here with us. Because they said every year, a group of missionaries, priests, lay people come here and they put on a mission and we're all energized and then they're gone. And within a few weeks, everything falls flat Hmm. because we don't know how to organize ourselves to do, to continue the things that we want to continue. Uh So I was listening to this and I will really say to you, John, that I had an experience like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. I felt that, you know, my heart burned within me as I listened to the people telling their stories. And I thought, holy God, this now is really something. I, I felt very, very moved by the whole thing and very drawn to it in the sense that I could see God, maybe this is where I should be, mm-hmm. because where, where I am with the medical missionaries is very needy. But after a few years and the sisters working there longer term, there was a certain amount of development. Mm. But here was nothing at all. And all, all the people were asking was, was for you to go and live there. They didn't say we wanted to build a school. We wanted to build a hospital. We wanted to build a church. No, they didn't say anything like that. They just said, we want you to come and live with us. So those words really haunted me when I went back to the medical missionaries. Mm -hmm. They really haunted me. We want people, we want you to come and live with us. So that began my journey of looking more closely at this place, which was actually only three hours by road from where I lived, although we had never heard of the place. Yes. Mm. So I talked to our own congregation and they said, well, look, you know, we're all getting old. There's nobody available to go, but we'll give you any support if you can find others to go. So I began then, There's a, every year you have a meeting of all the religious congregations. So I asked if I could speak at the meeting about this place and what was needed. So we went to the capital and you had a couple of hundred religious there for this big assembly. That happened once a year, all the congregations, all the members flocked in and we had, we used to have great assemblies. They were absolutely marvelous. So anyway, I got my slot and I talked about this place and I put out the invitation. I said, look, 
we want to go to this place, but we do not have many sisters. But we would be very interested in an intercongregational development. So various sisters came afterwards and they thought it was very needy and very everything. But the same story with everybody like ourselves in Ireland, they didn't have any sisters. So I said to the Lord, well, now, Lord, what's going to happen? There are no sisters. But true to, God, true to form, God was not deaf to the cries of the people. And so this woman contacted me because she heard about all of this. A woman by the name of Cecilia, a Brazilian woman. And she said, you know, she said, I belong to a group of lay missionaries. And she said, we have studied over four years to be lay missionaries, but we're all working in our own parishes. And she said, we have often thought that the missionary call really requires us to go out beyond our own frontiers, to go to some place more needy than our own place. And she said, we are very interested in what you're talking about. So fast forward, John, another maybe six months or 12 months, I can't remember. That was how I ended up going to live in Umburana's with, in the beginning, just one lay missionary from that group, a woman called Marconina. So the two of us arrived back in the place. Now we, we, we well, I should have said, of course, first of all, that the presentation sisters wrote back to say that for various reasons of their own, they couldn't come. So that's then when I started uh, trying to see, well, can somebody else come? So I went back to live there with one lay missionary and that was the start of an 11 year journey where I lived with these lay missionaries, plus over the years, some Irish lay missionaries that we got to come. And we had one Brazilian couple with their little boy who were extraordinary because they gave a commitment for seven years. Most of the other lay missionaries, they came for two years or for three years. But this married couple, because the man had done the training for the lay missionaries, they came with their little boy of three and they stayed for seven years. So over the following 11 years, that's how I began my mission in Umburanas. That's a long way from sitting at the desk <laughs> in the ice cream parlor place. Doesn't the, Lord work, doesn't the Lord work in some... And, and I, I couldn't help but, but think of um, when you were speaking there, the, the words that came to me, and actually you quoted them, I come to give you life and life in the fullness. And he's certainly there with you sitting by your desk. Is this what it's all about? Oh, he heard you. Yeah, okay. he surely did. So you, you know, at this stage now, you've been, you've been out in Brazil now for how, how many years did you say? 11 years? And it's all together 17 years. 17 years. And then what happened? When I was, when I was in Brazil for 11 years... Uh, it was all in partnership with this lay missionary group. So after 10 years, they decided that for all their own reasons, that they wouldn't be able to send any more lay missionaries after the following year. So that kind of set me questioning then, because I thought, you know, we're here 11 years. This mission was always conceived of as a community mission. I never conceived of it as something that I would do on my own. It was always with other missionaries. 
So I thought if my if my partner group are going to go away, maybe that's the sign to me that we have fulfilled our mission in this place. And so began a discernment process to see if the time was right that we would both the Malay missionary group and ourselves as a congregation, that we would take the steps towards handing everything over to the local people. And that is what we did. We, we spent the final year preparing the local people in the two organizations that we had helped to set up. We spent the final year preparing them to take over a project which had now developed. I didn't tell you what we were doing there for the 11 years because you'd want another day on your program. <laughs> but, you know, there were a lot of a lot of things had developed that would need a that would need organization. And they were all developed with the local people. So the happy part was that there were people there to whom we could hand over the things. So that was how the at that time when the congregation knew that this was happening, they said to me, well, maybe would you consider coming back to Ireland to do fundraising for this this mission that you've been involved in, plus other ones that we have in Colombia, Peru, Madagascar and Argentina that we had that time. So it seemed right that if my partner organization was going away, that it was right that we all would go. And just uh, just one thing now, just before we leave that, how well were you received by the by the group of people that you went to there in Brazil, that first mission where nobody else was based? How were you yes. received? Yeah, I suppose they really didn't know what to make of us, John, yeah. because uh, like it was a very traditional place. Yeah. Like you talk about Vatican II, yeah. but Vatican II hadn't arrived at all yeah, in this okay. place. Okay. You know, we okay. were still kind of pre-Vatican II. Mm. Okay. So talk about basic Christian communities that hadn't arrived there at all. So the people sort of, they didn't know what to make of us, really. Uh, like I was dressed in the same way that the lay missionary was dressed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, people kind of found this hard to understand. You know, their idea of nuns were, you know, convents and yep. habits and all of that. Yep. Yep. So little bit by little bit. What really helped was that we didn't do anything at all for the first year. We said, we're just going to get to know the people and listen to what they're talking about and what they see as the most urgent needs. And that's what we did, you know, little bit. That original group that we had met, they were what they'd call the senoras of the church. They were like what you have in every parish. You have this very dedicated group of older people yes. who gravitate around the church. Mm. And they were they were keeping that little church alive, even though they had never had a priest. The bishop, God rest him, used to go there at Christmas and Easter to celebrate mass. That was the place he used to go because there was no priest. So they were very grateful that we were there, but they kind of didn't quite know what we were there for. So in the beginning... They would ask us to do all the things, you know, if somebody died, could you do the funeral? Mm -hmm. But before we ever went there, they were doing the funerals. So we said, listen, we'll go with you, but you keep doing what you were always doing. Because we didn't come to take over from you. We came to kind of help you to do what you can't reach on. So little bit by little bit, 
then like we got to know you see working in the community uh, you don't know there are there were seven churches in the town now you're talking about a small town of 16,000 people but there were seven religions mm. and the catholic one was one of the smallest ones and it was also the one that was most closely identified with the poorest people now as we got to know people people were belonging to churches and so you know at christmas time we'd get an invitation to go to the baptist church let's say for their mission and of course i went because we were invited and you know it was a nice ecumenical gesture in a place where ecumenism really hadn't arrived at all because they were all very separate and the people kind of didn't understand this why was i going to the baptist church so you, you know it took a good while for people to understand about ecumenism then when in the very early time there was a big calamity because a very bad storm came and several houses which were only very fragile houses they were literally the walls were knocked down so people came to say that their houses had been knocked down mm -hmm. and could we help so we looked and we said well surely the, the town hall has to have something to do with this you know they can't be expecting just that a foreign country is going to come in when they have a crisis they have to try and do something for themselves so we went to the town hall with the local people the people who came looking for the help we said come on mm. and we'll go to the town hall and they said no 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 there'll be no use they're not going to hear us and they're not going to do anything for us but we said come on and we'll go so the first day we couldn't even see anybody that we wanted to see so we said okay we'll come again tomorrow second day we did get to see somebody and the man kind of looked at us and said, well, you know, that's too bad. That has happened. But we don't have any money for that kind of thing. This is the, the man now in the town hall. He was supposed to be like whatever social outreach. Mm. So we said to him, well, how about we go 50-50 in this? How about you help some of the people and we help some? So he kind of brightened up at that suggestion. So I said, okay. Let's make a list of all who need either, well, it was really a reforming of the houses because the houses were so poor, you could build a wall and then preserve the other walls. Mm. So we said, how about you making out a list and we'll, half, we'll go half and half. And that's what we did. We went down through the list, one for you, one for me. But you see, what I didn't know was that that man was what they call a crenshaw, which is a believer of another church. So he's kind of open-mouthed with the thoughts that the Catholics are going to work with him because this never happened. The Catholics kind of didn't mix at all with the other churches mm. and the other churches didn't mix with Catholics. So that was another thing, John, to answer your question, how were we received? People kind of couldn't understand that, that we were going up into that very poor street and we weren't asking anybody whether they're Catholics and we were going up there and we were helping them to rebuild their houses. They couldn't understand. And a woman came to me and she said, oh, my neighbors are all very angry with me because they said, no, I'm going to become a Catholic. And she said to them, why are they saying that? She, she said to them, why do you think that? And they said, sure, the nun is helping you. And of course she's going to tell you now that you must start going to their church. Mm. So I said, listen, no, it doesn't work like that at all. That's a different story altogether, you know. 
we're here to do the work of the gospel, to reach out to the needy person. So that kind of was another big revelation that really, you know, the, the gospel message is for everybody. So those kind of things in the beginning, John, people found them difficult to understand. But I mean, fast forward down 11 years, we did a lot of work in those intervening years. When I say we, it was principally the lay missionaries, the Brazilian ones, because they were very, they were very trained in the basic Christian community movement. So they did a lot of work that helped the people to understand much more what, what the whole thing was all about. And like the project that's there today now, that we're still supporting as a congregation, even though I'm six years gone out of there, we're still supporting them financially. And they're carrying ahead the things themselves because we have tried to inculcate that spirit that the gospel call is for everybody. And while we were the missionaries from afar, the people are the missionaries locally who have to reach out and help the others. You certainly haven't been bored anyway. You, you certainly have not been bored. So it, it came to the time, as you said, when you, you came to return home. Uh, yes, I got the suggestion of the congregation was that I would take up this work of fundraising for the missions. Now, my thought at that time was, you remember I said that the lay missionary organization had said that they couldn't send anybody the following year mm -hmm. because they at by this time, John, by 11 years down the road, various ones had gone to other places like Umburanas yeah. to, to go out from their own native parish. Mm -hmm. So they had other missions at this stage that they had to support. So my thought was, well, if they can't come here and we're thinking that we should, it's time to hand over to the local people, then maybe I would join in one of their missions for a few years. And I actually did go to visit one of their missions that I thought, yeah, I could see myself here working with them. But anyway, when the congregation request came to know would I consider this job, I thought, well, maybe, you know, I'm getting older. Maybe it is time to go home and I can still support this work from Ireland. So... Sister Bree, can I just ask you a question there? You're still a member of your original organised um, congregation all the time. Oh, I belong to the Little Sisters of the Assumption and I live now with five of them here in Cork. Right, but I mean, so, but when you were out in Brazil there, in that community by yourself, um, I mean, if the Little Sisters of the Assumption needed you, you, you might have had to have moved out of there and moved back to the work they wanted. I would, John. Theoretically, hmm. but from the very beginning, the congregation gave me the support to do this. Okay. And what they said was, we will support you, which they did. And they said, just remember that the support, it could be financial, it could be anything else, but it will stop short at people. Because if you go, there will not be any other sister to go after you. Okay. You just remember that. Okay. You, can, you can find people to work and live with as a missionary, but don't expect us to send any more sisters because we don't have them. Okay. But I knew that anyway, John. I, no. I kind of knew that, you know. But I could never have done it without the support of the congregation no. because the congregation were fantastically supportive. So um, the, the Lord had more work for you to do and that work entailed coming back to Ireland and how did that work out? What was involved there? Uh, well, now, that's a whole, a whole different thing because... 
for all the years that I was involved overseas in Brazil, I was linked with the, there's a, a program in Ireland called the Irish Aid Program, which is the Irish government's outreach to the developing world. And so I targeted that organization when I came back to Ireland. Because as you might know, John, every government in the developed world, so to speak, has a commitment to contribute 0.07% of their gross national product, their income, to overseas development. Mm -hmm. And that was, a that was a commitment after the Second World War with the rebuilding of Europe. All these countries got together and, jo and jointly they financed the rebuilding of Europe after the Second World War. And when that was done, then they said, well, now we should turn our attention to the south of the world. And so that's where the United Nations began to look at the south of the world. And with the collaboration of all these countries who contributed this percentage every year from their income, there are now a lot of works going on in the south. So I targeted into this when I came back. And a lot of the funding that I get now is through this, what we call grant writing. Mm. Now, when you get these grants, which are all very bureaucratic, you only get three quarters of the grant. You know, if, if supposing you need 10,000 euros to build a preschool, you will ever only get three quarters. You'll only get 7,500. Mm. And so you have to raise the other 2,500 yourself. So I got into this because it seemed to me something that would be very appealing to donors that for every, you know, for that 25%, it would mean that for every one euro that somebody contributed, I could convert it into four euros if I could get some of these 75% grants. And so that's what I've been doing, John. I've been fundraising actively in Ireland for the last six years and raising these 25% to help to supplement this, the three-quarter percent of the, of the grants that I get. I don't know, does that sound very It does, it does, it does. And some of, that, some of that fundraising goes to help countries, obviously, that can't take care of themselves. And I believe more recently, you were in Madag Madag Madagascar. Yeah. Can you tell no, me? Madagascar. Oh, Lord, Madagascar, John, is an extremely poor country. Madagascar has 70% of its population in poverty. That means that the, the whole country doesn't have the infrastructure. And there's a kind of a rating of all the countries of the world. And Madagascar is one of the least developed. And of all the countries that we are in, it is the poorest. Because 70% are officially under the poverty line. So, you know, you, you really couldn't imagine even though Brazil and the semi-desert and all of that was very poor, Madagascar was even poorer. It really is, because they don't have the infrastructure. Now, I, when I went there, I, I had been supporting projects there for the past three years. We have two very, very good projects there. One is a health project where our sisters set up a health centre. They've just bought a house and started working in it. And uh, there was no health centre in this area of a, of a big city. And on the far side of the town, 
the sisters have an education project where they're doing fantastic education with children. Now, I could go in a little bit more in detail if you'd like to hear a little bit more about those. Yeah, yeah, please, why not? Okay. So one of the things that I discovered when I went to visit the health centre, which I had been supporting for the last three years without ever seeing it, was that, my gosh, here was a whole big neighbourhood that had no health service. So I saw at first hand the distance that sick people had to go to get to a hospital. Now, the hospital was a long ways away. There's no public transport. So if you don't have transport or if you can't afford to get someone to take you, you have to walk. And it was a long ways, a few kilometers to find this public hospital. Then when you get there, every single thing in that hospital, John, you have to pay for. From the time you put your foot inside the door, you have to pay for every tablet that you get. You have to you have to have someone to give you your meals, so your family has to bring in your food. And the worst thing of all, if you die, you are charged by the length of time that your body is left in the hospital before your family can come and get you. Wow. So there is no such thing as free health. No such thing. Every iota. And that's now the public hospital, where everything has to be paid for. So that was one of the reasons why the congregation bought a house and the the sister who's running it is a nurse and a midwife. She's a missionary there from the island of Tonga, a little sister of the Assumption. And she's there with a small group of sisters from France and from Brazil, who are all missionaries working in this health centre. So you can see the great need because they started, we were started helping them in 2017. Then in 2018, they had 1,606 patients. And by the end of 2019, the number had gone up to 4,627. So like you had a threefold increase because the people had no other no other help. So that was pretty awful. Now, you, I met a meeting with UNICEF and they told me that over 40% of the children under five in Madagascar have stunted growth. Right. Now, like when you think of it, yeah. children yeah. under five, nearly half of the whole of them have stunted growth. And like Madagascar is officially one of the highest rates of chronic malnutrition in the whole world. It, it really is very bad. So one of the things I'm trying to help in Madagascar now at the moment, I was actually on the WhatsApp earlier today with that sister in, in Madagascar because we're trying to get money for the this crisis of the COVID-19. Because what they're finding is that the people don't understand what the virus is. It, unfortunately, John, since I was there, it has come to their city. Just one person so far has died. But as you know, once it has, you see, this place that I was in is way, way, way in the distant you know, it's a way, way down south. Mm-hmm. It was. It took me almost 12 hours by road on a bad road in a kind of a, a what would you call it, a kind of a communal taxi. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about a place that's a long way from the capital. Mm-hmm. Now, they're really very badly, badly situated, but the virus has reached them, unfortunately. So they're trying to gather funding because they need to buy the protective equipment 
they don't probably hear so much about here the PPE. Yes. For themselves and for the other two centres that they work with in other parts of the city, they also need it. And also then they need to get very basic hygiene supplies for people, for families, and they need to get food supplies. Because while food is not something normally that we would be very involved in giving out, at the same time, what they say about many of these countries, John, is that it won't be the virus that will kill them. The people will die from hunger because most of them die, most of them live on the informal economy. That means that they go out every day, they do something on the street, they sell something or they're doing something, getting paid by somebody for something. But it's very much day to day living. There really is no savings and there's no fallback. So if they can't go out to work on the street, to sell whatever, you know, very often they cook food in their home and they bring it out onto the street to sell it to other people. If there's nobody on the street because of the, the isolation, the curfews, and if they can't go out on the street, mm. then that is producing already in all of our projects, several of them that I've been on to these days, that's producing a huge problem of lack of food because people haven't the money to to go and buy food. And tell me, sister, can we do anything this part of the world in Ireland to help you out in that effort? Oh, absolutely. And people have been fantastically generous, John. I have to say that the people of Ireland have been fantastically generous. Uh, I have a very good fundraising committee in Cork and I have very supportive friends in Limerick. So what people do is that I, I give around the bank account number that is specifically for this fundraising work. This account is not used in any way by the congregation. It's used solely for my fundraising work. So any money that anyone wants to donate can go straight. It can go either into that Bank of Ireland fund or it can come straight to me here in Cork. And how would they contact yourself, Sister Reid? Uh, I can tell you now, I live in Blackpool, and I can give you my address. It's very simple. It's 32 St. Francis Gardens, Okay. Blackpool, Cork. Okay. And then my phone number is 87 or five seven eight two four nine and then my email is my own name b r i g e bride dot cunahan c o u n i h a n at gmail dot com so i do know john that Things are very bad for many people in Ireland and they are likely to get worse. I do know that. And I also know that in terms of uh, fundraising, uh, people in Ireland in the recent years have had kind of questions about the money given to charity and whether it ever really reaches the poor. And unfortunately, you know, in the charity sector, we've had some stories that were less than encouraging. Mm. But all I can say to you is, that you can be certain, I can say to your listeners, that any donation, big or small, that is given to this fund 
will reach the people who need it because we are working directly through our own sisters who are there on the ground. And I send the money directly to them. So there is no difficulty of anybody feeling that their money is going to a big black hole and it will never reach the people because it will. I can give you that assurance, John. Thanks. Thanks for that, Brid. Just going back over over your your whole story there now, it's it's been a a beautiful walk with the Lord. Uh, he, certainly, a, a few times you mentioned that you spoke with the Lord, and He certainly answered you. He certainly gave the strength to carry on. Um, I, I suppose just to sum up your own vocation and your own journey with the Lord, how how would you sum it all up, Brid? I would say that it's very important for any young person that's searching for their vocation to listen to what they might think is God's spirit within their own hearts. For example, I gave you a few examples there, John. I said at one point that when I listened to those people in Uburanas, it was like my heart, that something was burning within me as I listened. Now, also, when I was sitting in my office in Cork with Marvel ice cream, I felt this question rising up. Is this all there is to life? Is this it? And I think God puts into the heart of every young person who is searching for a way of life. Those desires, God puts those desires in our hearts. But you just need to take a little bit of quiet, a little bit of silence, a little bit of mindfulness, just to tune into what's going on within your own self. And you might feel that, there is some restlessness there. There is something that you can't quite figure that is kind of making you a bit a, a bit searching. So my suggestion then would be that if that is true for some young person, that they would look for a spiritual guide. That can be a priest, it can be a sister, it can be a lay person. There are many people nowadays, John, many lay people who are in this work of spiritual guidance or spiritual direction. And that is something that will help the person to see, is God really calling me to some kind of a religious vocation? Because most people are called to the single life or to the religious life, to the married life, but a small number are called to this way of life, which is totally gospel-based. It's living the gospel in a particular way. And I suppose you might have heard, John, of what we call the three vows. People don't maybe often speak about them, but they are the basis of our commitment to God, like the married people take vows to each other. And we have three vows, which maybe the names of them are a little bit misleading because the names come from an old language, but the meaning of them is very important to us. For example, we talk about the vow of poverty. And when we talk about that, what we mean really is a commitment to share our lives with others in a spirit of service and to live in a free, simple and trusting way. So that means we try to be countercultural in the culture that tells you that it's all about acquiring more, having, you know, more things and more things and more cars and more property and more whatever. We try to go against that by choosing to have a simple lifestyle and to share ourselves with others in service. That is very important for the vow of poverty. Then we talk about the vow of chastity. And that by the vow of chastity, we mean 
that we commit ourselves to continue always to keep our hearts open to the call of God to love. Because that kind of stirring in your heart is really the call of God. Now, you can close your heart to it or you can open your heart to it in love. And that is what our commitment is, that we try to open our hearts in love to this call of God that manifests itself in every day and to live that call of love in a joyful and loving way. No point, John, in going around with a long face if you're supposed to be a person that's claiming to be in love with the Lord and that you are committed to this way of living the vow of chastity. And then lastly, we talk about the vow of obedience. And that's uh, probably another misnomer because the word obey comes from the Latin word, which is translated as to hear. It's interesting. It's not to do, it's to hear. And what we mean by the vow of obedience taken by religious nowadays is that we continue to search for the will of God in our own lives, in the congregation and in the world around us. And we do know very clearly at one level what the will of God is if we listen in an opening and listening way. Because Jesus has already given us the total blueprint in the Gospels. He has told us there the will of God, how to live, the Beatitudes, tell it all to us. So that's our vow of obedience that collectively as a group, we commit ourselves to living this will of God. And for us as a congregation, it would be particularly with reference to families and to the poor. Sister, Sister Bree, thank you so much for, for taking so much time out to tell us that wonderful story, your, your journey with the Lord over all those years. It's so encouraging and we do, we, we do hope that whoever's listening to this programme this morning will get something from it. We'll just listen to the Lord as you did. They might be going over the Andes on the bus and, and asking the Lord, and, but we'll be somewhere on the journey. Thank you so much and may the Lord continue to give the strength and the courage and the faith to continue the work you're doing. God bless you now. Thank you very much, John. Thank you. So to finish the broadcast this morning, we'll play Sister Bright's uh, choice of music. It's I Dreamed a Dream by sung by Susan Boyle. So please God, until we meet again, hope you have a good week and God bless now. Tiger
Turn your dream to shame. 